Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Littleton Theatre. Thank you very much for coming. Um, my name's Sarah Hemming, and I write about theatre for the Financial Times. And I'm very pleased to introduce to you Nicholas Heitner, who is the Artistic Director of the National Theatre and also the Director of Travelling Light, the play we're going to be talking about. And Nicholas Wright, the playwright and author of the play. Um, now you'll have noticed we have two Nicholases here, so to avoid any confusion, I think uh, we're going to refer to Nicholas Heitner as Nick and Nicholas Wright as Nicholas, if that's okay with you gentlemen. <laughs> Rather than Nick one, Nick two, which might get a bit, a bit confusing. Um, so we're going to talk a bit about the play, about the genesis of the play, the subject, and the staging of it. Um, now, Travelling Light, um, it's been described by one theatre critic as a love letter to the movies. And if you've seen it, you'll know it's a very affectionate play. It's a playful drama about the origins of filmmaking. And it's set in a Jewish shtetl, which you can see around us, um, in somewhere in Eastern Europe around 1900. It tells the story of a young man, Mokel Mendel, who returns to his village and discovers that his father, who was a photographer, um, has a, now I'm going to pronounce this wrong, I think, a cinematograph. It's this thing here, this beautiful thing, um, which makes moving pictures. And he sort of falls in love with this idea, starts filming bits of the village. Um, and he's encouraged by Jakob Bindel, a local timber merchant, a larger-than-life man, um, who's played by Anthony Sher in this production. And he, in essence, is a sort of prototype Hollywood producer before such a thing ever existed, um, with all that goes with it. Uh, so he encourages him, as does Anna, a young woman who comes to help him. And between them, they sort of invent cinema by accident. So, I mean, Nicholas... Um, this is uh, your Nicholas, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's your baby. Let's go to you first. I mean, what, why was this a subject you wanted to write about? <coughs> You've described it very well because it's a what-if story. Of course, it mm. didn't happen. It's not a history of movies. Um, and some of it couldn't have happened. Nick. Nick reminded me the other night of something about it that, that certainly couldn't have happened. It, yeah, it's a what-if story, and it started in my head, I think with a, a, a friend of mine was directing a movie and he'd had a terrible day where the producer had sent, I think, sent back something like seven dressing tables. Um, <laughs> and the comic potential of this lived on in my mind. Uh, and I, it then turned into having Hollywood in a shtetl, which is really what you, what you get in the play. Uh, Obviously, I thought of the, the comic potential of how Hollywood features might happen in a, in a shtetl. I mean, nice things like exciting narratives and uh, yeah, sort of stories and montage, and then sort of doubtful and upsetting things like the casting couch and the fact that the movie mysteriously never goes into profit, and how that would be in this little small in this little small environment. And then, increasingly, as I thought about the shtetl, and I was reading a lot of a writer called Isaac Bashiva Singer at the time, to some extent Sholem Aleichem, but mostly Isaac Bashiva Singer, marvelous writer of short stories, most of which are set in the shtetl. It became more and more like a, a folk tale, 
which is how I think about it, a, a folk tale which tells sort of the story of a person's life um, and his quest to get away from his village and then his discovery that he never really got away from the village sort of towards the end of his life, that he carried it with him everywhere, everywhere he went. Because, yeah, I mean, you could have told the story of Mottle once you'd arrived in America, couldn't you? You could have... You could have followed him, you could have followed his struggles to become a producer there, but it was important to keep it in the shtetl, was it, for you? Yeah, yes, because it's, it's such a rich subject, you know, that mm. it, had to, it had to focus on something quite small. I did write, I mean, I did write scenes where Mottle was in America. I wrote a very funny scene where he was being an extra in a cowboy movie when he just arrived. <laughs> of course, he couldn't speak English, but he talked like this because he hadn't learned any English, and... Um, and then he realized they were all in terrible trouble on set because they'd just discovered a phenomenon you may know called crossing the line. That's which side, which people always have a lot of difficulty walking. People always stand around on the set going like, no, like that, like that. But he, Mottle, could do it. And this was an entry into movies that he knew how to not cross the line. So, yes, so the, it could have gone like that, but it didn't. Um, Nick, I mean, for you... Um why, why did you decide to program it here? What, what, what touched you in the play? Uh, Nick sent me the play out of the blue about, um, uh, about 15 months ago. Uh, and uh, it's, it's always hard to pinpoint exactly why a play appeals. Um, I loved the media. Uh, I thought Nick had caught it beautifully. I'm, I've not read them for a I'd not, I had not at the time read them for a while, but I'm quite familiar with the, uh, with the uh, stories and novels of Isaac Bashida Singer. Uh, I, I loved also that it was an opportunity to tell the story of how movies were invented um, in a completely unexpected media. Mm -hmm. I think that's been completely coincidental. I'm sure I'm now anticipating one of your questions, but it's completely coincidental that we find ourselves uh, playing this play at a time when two extremely good and well-received movies mm -hmm. um, have have uh, been released, and they both deal in the artist and Hugo. I'm talking about. They both deal um, with silent movies a uh, mm -hmm. completely different way. Uh, these things somehow enter the zeitgeist. I wonder whether I wonder whether there has been um, a response to the. Um, the increasing reliance um, of, of movies on, um, on digital trickery. Mm. That there's a, there's, a, there's a hankering for uh, the honest, direct uh, truth, the truthfulness, the simplicity of the silent movies. I wonder whether it's something to do with that, but certainly it's a coincidence. We had no idea 15 months ago mm -hmm. that uh, either of those two movies were in preparation. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and mean, there's also Singing in the Rain as well, which is about the um, yeah. transition from the... Um, the silent movies to the talkies. Yeah. And I think one of the things the play brings out, doesn't it, is the thrill of discovery, which yeah. perhaps 100 years after film was invented, we're, we're going back to. Do you yeah. think that's possibly um, something, Nicholas, that's, that the play... Because it, there's, you have to, we as an audience watching, and you as a writer and director, you have to imagine what it was like to have never seen a moving picture before, which is inconceivable to us now, surrounded by them. You're asking me? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, Sorry. Nicholas. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Uh, yes. It. 
I think people reacted to movies in, in quite different ways. It's not, I think the stories about people running out of the cinema when the train appeared because they thought they'd get run over, I think those are made up to some degree. I think mostly mm. people were quite, quite bewildered by it. Gorky writes an interesting piece about it, about being quite bewildered, thing is like sort of a phantom, a land of phantoms. Um, but also, and of course, editing, it took time for the human race actually to understand editing. If you showed editing, a modern edited film, sort of like sharp editing, people had never seen a movie before, I don't think they'd understand what was going on. It's a language we've all had to learn. And, and it's a language that's evolved, is yes. that we now have no trouble with, for instance, a man getting out of the car, yes. and as he slams the door shut, yes. he's at the bottom of the stairs saying, hello, honey, I'm home. But you don't, you don't have to go back that many decades uh, to find movies which assumed that you had to show him walk up the driveway, yeah. go in through the front door, shut the front door. Uh, it's, only, it's only through a, a process of the evolution of the language that we understand what that transition means. And one, I think one of, the, one of the things that really turned me on when I first read the play was the scene in which um, Nick imagines um, montage being invented, editing, yeah. story montage, editing being mm -hmm. invented. Uh, it, took a, it took about uh, 20 years uh, for French, American, uh, particularly French and American, and uh, I mean, obviously the Russians got way ahead um, rather quicker than we did through Eisenstein, but yeah. it took 20 years for them to figure out what Nick imagines a, this mm. boy and this girl figuring out overnight. Overnight, yeah. because they love each other yeah. so much. Yeah. Uh, but it's, 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 I wonder sometimes whether, I mean, it would be, it would be great to have, to have someone whose language was movies up here. I wonder whether the language might have evolved differently. And you can see that it has evolved rather differently um, in different schools of movie making. We tend to take the, um, the dominance of Hollywood and the influence of Hollywood rather for granted. But still, for instance, um, the French call the over-the-shoulder close-up, which is the staple of the American movie, the American dialogue scene, where you, you know, where you have the shoulder of the character being talked to, visible in the, sh in the close-up shot, the person doing the talking. They call that the American shot. And the, the, the French cinema has not really used it. You have two shots, you have close-ups. They don't really do the over-the-shoulder shot. Um, so, which suggests that, rather as this play, suggests that movie language is the, is, is the invention, the evolved invention yes. of, the first, of the first people who started figuring it out and yeah. persuading audiences how to, how, to, how to look at the truth. Yeah, and it's that thrill, isn't there, of making it up on the hoof, basically, mm. which they were, they, yeah. you know, they invented. Maybe that's, I, I think, maybe one reason why people fall so in love with the artist, because it goes back to silent movies and says, let's take another look, mm. let's see what, because suddenly, the minute the talkies appeared, that was it for yeah. silent movies. And yes. perhaps, perhaps we live in an age where technology <laughs> evolves so fast all the time that we're beginning to think, just a minute, Let's yeah. not always move on. Let's go yeah. back and take another look, which, <coughs> which in a sense this play does. I mean, the, 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 there's a scene which people who've seen it will know where the, where the locals come and have an early viewing and, and make their feelings felt about, <laughs> about some of the, the way that the film's been shot. But this, this sense of um, inventing it and, and creating it. Well, that is a focus group. Mm. That is, they, yes. they, they don't realize they've invented it, they, but they invent 
a focus group several decades ahead of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is how focus groups are, believe yeah. me. Yeah. Um, we don't have them here, I believe me that on that as well, but I've yeah. been to them. I mean, it's very playful in, in that respect, but I guess there's also a serious heart to it too. I mean, um, it is set, set in this shtetl, and now we're sitting rather wonderfully on it due to the creation of Bob Crowley in a beautiful set. But of course, they don't exist anymore, do they? Um, no, because no. everybody was killed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, no, no. They were, all, they, were, they were all murdered. Yes, exactly. So you can only get at them through art, mm. in a way. Only art, they're preserved through art, through writing, through pictures. I mean, what research did you do to, uh, to find out about life in those villages? I think the only research I did was to read a lot, was to read a lot of Isaac Bashir saying I had to make millions of notes about what people were eating, what they were playing, what they were wearing, um, and following that. I mean, there's one thing that what the play treats very lightly, and it's not quite lifelike, is I've left out the influence of religion on everybody's, on everybody's daily life. Mm. Um, or I've played that very, I've played it down a lot. I mean, there's a rabbi who appears on the film, that sort of thing. But actually, in life, it's clearly not a very orthodox village, but even if it were quite um, sort of progressive, if that's the word, there would be more, religion would play more of, a, uh, more of a role in people's lives than I've shown in the play, but I didn't really want to go there, and I didn't really feel qualified to use it as a subject for comedy either, so I didn't, mm -hmm. didn't do it. And for you, Nick, I mean, bringing this place alive and making it feel real. Did you, did you do much research about that? How did you go about trying to turn this into a real village? Well, again, there's, there's plenty of written material. There's a mm. huge amount of written material. Um, there's, there's also, in, in my case, honestly, and in the case of about half the cast, um, I wouldn't say it's a folk memory, but uh, about half of us are Jewish and had Jewish upbringings of some kind or another. Mm. Um, seven of my eight great-grandparents, um, <coughs> to my certain knowledge, were born in villages like this one, in shtetls like this one. Mm -hmm. um, two of my grandfathers were. Uh, no, one, one, uh, one of my grandfathers was. Uh, 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 the, the, the second, uh, his family had left the shtetl just before he was born. Um, and although it's a long time ago, it's, it's uh, uh, casting my mind back to my childhood in Manchester. Um, I spent, I spent um, periods of my childhood um, amongst people who might just as well have been sitting around a table in a shtetl. Um, so um, I th I mean, I've no doubt there are some people here who will yeah. understand what I'm getting at. But, it's, um, yeah. uh, so, but, but there is a lot of written material. Very touchingly, there's, some, there's, there's, not, there's, no, there's ver very little. You could, couldn't find any um, film archive material, a little bit. But what there is, what there are, are, are films made by Yiddish-speaking actors. Uh, they're made either in America or in Russia. Um, Russian actors, Russian Jewish actors uh, made films before the war. 
and a lot of Yiddish-speaking American actors made films. Some of them are silent, some of them are talky. Uh, at the same time as the Jews who ran Hollywood essentially wouldn't touch Jewish material. Big mm. exception is the jazz singer. Yeah. One exception, very interestingly, yeah. after that they, they, would, they wouldn't go back there again. But they wouldn't, so, so, so Sam Goldwyn and Louis B. Mayer and, and Fox and Lemlet, they, they would not make Jewish material. But there was a, a much smaller but parallel industry going on mm. made by, in America by um, Yiddish-speaking actors and directors. And you, you can pick up a hell of a lot from those movies, a hell of a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's poignant and ironic, I think, in the, in the play that um, Jacob, the um, timber merchant stroke Hollywood producer uh, character, is very keen for Mottle to stay stay where you belong, stay in your home, stay, don't, don't go. Yeah. And he's anxious to, to go as a young man. And the irony, of course, is uh, for us looking back now from the 21st century is that if he stayed, he may well have been killed. It's only by leaving that he's able to. Um, and many, as, as you've touched on, many of the huge players in the Hollywood uh, the golden age were Jewish, weren't they Jewish immigrants? Not all, obviously, but uh, many. I mean, do you think that the industry would have been different if people hadn't felt compelled to leave. I think without a shadow of doubt, mm. it would have been very, very different without the producers. Mm. There were not many Jewish directors, funnily enough, but mm -hmm. not so many, but, but, but there were a few who came a bit later, like Henry Costa and who was, you know, bring on the empty horses. Um, Beedle, Tim Beedle. Who? Michael Curtis. Michael Curtis, exactly. And, uh, and Billy Wilder, of course. But the first generation, it was, it was the producers, but of course, it, they brought with them the, the knowledge of popular Yiddish entertainment, of popular Yiddish theater, which is like strong stories, mm -hmm. heartbreaking tragedies, uh, you know, ravishing romances, interspersed with song, mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. this very important element in Yiddish theater, and that's what they, and that's what they brought. I think you have a theory, don't you, that uh that one great Western was actually a Jewish story. Yes, right? I did say that because, <laughs> well, I, I read a lot about popular Yiddish culture in the 19th century, and the stories that were popular were used like pulp fiction. And one of them is about um, a, a village, a shtetl, which is infested by rogues and crooks and criminals, which, uh, to which then uh, a very brave man comes to this shtetl, and he kills some of them, and the rest of them run away. And this is a you know, popular story. You think, hello, I've no, I know this story. This is High Noon. <laughs> <laughs> High Noon is go. a Jewish movie. <laughs> uh, High Noon, Jewish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it's a, you know, that's a very poignant thing, isn't it? And I, you can't help noticing that the three, you know, the three main players in this um, nascent film industry mm -hmm. here, um, none of them really have a close family. They've all lost... The, so Jacob has had this extraordinary life, which if you've seen the, film, mm. the play, you'll, you'll know. Yes. If you're going to, you'll find out about. But he's had an extraordinary life and lost his family. Anna yeah. has lost her family. And Mottle uh, only has his aunt. Now, do you think that's, um, that's important in, their, in spurring their creativity? Is that a... It is for me, because they're all... They, they, they do, we never really talked about it, but it's, I know there was a pattern there that they, you know, Jacob's lost his son to the army and then finds a surrogate son in 
Mottle. Mottle has this kind of weird relationship with his father who he wanted to escape from, but he kind of finds himself reproducing it with, with Jacob. There is a, there's really a family thing there, of people losing their families and trying to put their families together again. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nick, could you, do you think it's possible, am I theorizing too far, but are they almost like microcosms of what happened on a bigger scale, that people lose their exiles, they lose their home, they lose their family, so they create, they create art to, to memory, mem remember it by? Yes. Yes, I, I think only, only one of them in this play thinks he's creating art. Mm. Um, model the director and he's obliged to make um, all the compromises that anybody who wants um, to make art with other people is obliged to make. Um, <laughs> Same with feeling yeah, there, I think. Yeah. No, well, no, because I, <laughs> here, as often as not, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the Yakov figure. Um, mm. And uh, I'm, I'm the impossible producer saying, it's 10 minutes too long. It's always 10 minutes too long, but it's quite often half an hour too long. Um, but, uh, and, um, and somehow we never cut enough, ever. Um, but uh, I'm, so I'm on both sides of the, um, mm. I'm on both sides of the equation. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I think I think I think it, it is a case that a lot of a lot of people who are either artists or involved in the creation or delivery of art are are driven um, are driven by some need uh, to connect more widely than maybe they have been mm. able to connect um, uh, in their social lives. That, that's a, a ridiculous generalization because equally there are, there, there are those um, who aren't. I think one of the interesting things though about this, uh, this generation of filmmakers, the Jewish, the Jewish producers uh, who arrived in, in, in Hollywood, uh, I don't think they were exiles. They didn't feel mm. like exiles. They were quite. They quite often left because uh, because it was life in the shtetl was too hot for ha to handle. They, they they left as a result of pogroms. They they left as a result of economic oppression. But I think uh, they weren't. They. I don't think Shmuel Goldfish, who mm. became Sam Goldwyn. Um, <laughs> thought of himself as a, a refugee or even an economic refugee. Mm. He thought of himself as a man on the make mm. and he tried everything. He was selling gloves before he started, um, mm. before he started making movies. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, <coughs> there was a kind of pioneering grittiness about them, mm. um, which, which was a, um, optimistic and outward looking. Mm -hmm. they, they, they weren't letting anything get in their way. Mm -hmm. And I think that mm. Nick has caught amazingly well in, in, mm -hmm. in the character of Jacob. Mm -hmm. Not, he doesn't let anything get in his way. No. But no, no, that's right. I remember you, now, now for the first time, I remember you when you were doing his dark materials, Nick. I remember you, you got to some naughty point of the story and you say, look, I'm just Joe Soap sitting here and I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that, that is... That is the job of both the director and the producer quite yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, um, we'll open it up to, to you guys to have a, 
uh, pop a few questions in a second. Um, but um, just, just before we do, we should just mention Anthony Sher, I mean, playing this mm. part. Was it important to you to have him in this extraordinary, um, this, Jacob, I mean, we should uh, perhaps explain, Jacob is a character who, he's lost his family through a pogrom. He, um, he's sort of brought himself up wild, hasn't he? He doesn't have one language that he speaks um, yeah. with real confidence, does he? He speaks several languages um, in a sort of pigeon way. But he's this force of nature. So having Anthony Cher play him, was that important? To me, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yes. I always imagined, always, always, always imagined him. And he is exactly <laughs> like I imagined, except, you know, like how many hundred times better, I wouldn't know, but, you know, much better, yeah. And for you, Nick, it was bringing him back, I guess, to the... Yeah, well, the the very, the, when I called Nick to say, I think the play's wonderful, uh, and he said, and of course, Yakov is Tony. <laughs> I said, well, of course. Um, and yeah, it was, wonder it was wonderful that he responded, he responded so, uh, so positively to the play. Mm. And also, it was a great opportunity to, um, to get him to, to come and do two plays, because uh, uh, at the end of this year, he's going to do The Captain of Copenhagen, Sug mm. Sugmar's play, which is a completely different play mm -hmm. to this. But to be able to bring actors of Tony's caliber mm. back onto the stage is here. It's great. Yes, Terrific. yes. As part of an ensemble, it should be said. It's a big ensemble. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So thank you very much indeed for coming. And thank you to both Nick and Nicholas <laughs> for all your insightful comments. And uh, good evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.